Hi, Shay. Hey, Anna. Did you bring your notes? <laughs> so many notes. Listeners, today we're trying out a new format, and we're pretty excited, to say the least. Yeah, we thought that a book review might be an interesting endeavor for us. It's rare that you and I are reading the same book, Shay, mm-hmm. so we had to take advantage. Mm-hmm. Yes, and the book we're discussing today, Race, Empire, and English Language Teaching by Dr. Suhanti Mata, has a special place in our hearts as proponents of reflective pedagogy. So we actually heard about this book directly from Dr. Matha during her keynote at the Waysal conference that we presented at back in October. Mm-hmm. And we were so moved by Dr. Matha's words. Like, we were literally sending each other messages as we listened to her because yeah. what she was saying just resonated so deeply. We mm-hmm. knew that we needed to read this book. And in doing so, we decided that there's a lot of richness to share with you, listeners. Mm-hmm. Shay, you and I have both spent a lot of time unpacking issues related to language and power. And in episode 13, we discussed that it's impossible to ignore how deeply embedded racism is in ELT. But our discussion today is incredibly timely now that it's Black History Month in the United States. Mm-hmm. Black History Month to celebrate the contributions of Black people to American history and culture. And whenever there's a month or a day dedicated to a group, you know what that means. Yep, there's some inequity there, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Systems that maintain the status quo, a socially created hierarchy that lifts up some and attempts to push down others. In other words, this is the perfect month to talk about the inequities, the racism that exists within our field. So let's dive in and discuss our take on Dr. Matha's book. Hello, and welcome to the Teacher Think Aloud podcast, a podcast for reflective practice for teachers of English around the world. I'm your co-host, Shay. And I'm Anna. So the full title of Dr. Suhanti Matha's book is Race, Empire, and English Language Teaching, Creating Responsible and Ethical Anti-Racist Practice. So a little bit of how this came to be. It wasn't just a product of our fangirling over Dr. Matha, right? (laughs) Though... It certainly started that way. Mm-hmm. So Anna is the co-chair of the nonfiction book club affiliated with the English language programs by the Department of State. Naturally, since she's such an overachiever. <laughs> That's me, yeah. And she finally got me to join the book club when she said that they were planning to read this book. Right. So this conversation is essentially a continuation of what we discussed with our colleagues during the book club. It was an hour-long conversation, which is honestly an infinitesimal amount of time to devote to a book of such substance. Mm -hmm. But hey, you do what you can with what you've got. Mm -hmm. And while this episode won't be an hour long, (laughs) it it could easily be, we are going to try to highlight some of our key takeaways and the things that made us go, hmm. Hmm. Do you remember that song, Anna? (laughs) No. (laughs) From the 70s? No. (laughs) No. Things that make you go. Hmm, hmm, hmm. <laughs> no, I have no. no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> okay. Okay. Cool. Shay. Anna, let's start by sharing. Let's let's start by sharing some of what we thought to be really great about the book and some areas that left us wanting more. So I think that it's important to point out to begin that the book really has a U.S. focus. I mean, the idea of race, empire, and English language teaching obviously exists outside of the confines of the U.S. 
But a lot of the issues that Dr. Motha specifically talks about take place in the U.S. Potentially, you could generalize them to other monolingual English-speaking countries, inner circle countries like the U.K., Australia, and much of Canada. Mm -hmm. A large focus of the book involves case studies that take place in U.S. classrooms, right? Yeah. Dr. Matha facilitates a discussion group for new educators and uses excerpts from their conversations mm -hmm. and ultimately what is happening in their respective classrooms as qualitative data to support and inspire the theme she's exploring. So that's just something to note that maybe the experience expressed by the teachers in the case studies wouldn't be as immediately relevant or impactful for people in other places, other countries. Mm -hmm. But regardless, I do think there's a lot that you can pull out of what the teachers share. Yeah, there's something for everyone. But you might have to work a little bit harder on your own to adopt these ideas for your specific context. Mm -hmm. We should also mention that if you are a new teacher and you're treating this book as a sort of introduction to anti-racist pedagogy or, you know, the ties between race and English language teaching, this might feel a little bit overwhelming initially. Oh, yeah. It could feel a little bit dense in some areas because it is highly, highly researched and referenced throughout which is ultimately a positive trait, of course, but it could feel a bit intimidating if you're going into this reading experience never having thought about the intersection of race, empire, and ELT. Right. There's definitely a risk in this, not just for novice teachers, but it's also potentially challenging for teachers who've been in the field for longer. If it's also new ground for those veteran teachers, it could be overwhelming because then they have to adjust everything they've been doing to try to accommodate something that they might not have thought about a lot before reading. Mm -hmm. And so I think you and I definitely had those moments when we were like, oh, yikes, that's <laughs> totally a thing I do. And it's problematic for so many reasons. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. Another reason the book might not be so well received from some is that Dr. Matha isn't so focused on quick fixes or solutions just to plug into your classroom. Quoting from page 131, she states, this book is designed not to tell you what to do, but rather to support you as you think. Mm -hmm. Now, I could see how a lot of teachers could be really frustrated by that. Like, what the hell? Like, everyone just keeps telling me to think about things and come up with my own solutions. <laughs> like, I really wanted to read this book to have actual, you know, tangible action items. Yeah, I think that's probably a common sentiment. But when I read that statement, and this is also something that Dr. Matha mentioned in her talk at Waysol, she's essentially acknowledging that everyone's context is so different that you actually can't just boil down the complex ideas of this book or elements of her talk into very specific classroom practices. So I, I appreciate that she mm -hmm. highlights the innate complexity that we're trying to deal with here. Yeah, and so I think that it's important that we frame the exploratory nature of this book as both a pro and a con, mm -hmm. because some people appreciate the opportunity to customize the strategies that are mentioned, but Maybe this sort of nebulous approach would be considered a con if you're not ready to do reflective work. Yeah. Like, if you're not ready to go in and really pick apart virtually everything you thought <laughs> you knew about your profession and grapple with questions of identity and your role potentially as a perpetrator of colonization and racialization then maybe it's going to feel like an attack on your ego, yeah. which might cause you to shut down a bit. And then maybe you're not necessarily going to get as much out of it as you want to. 
Yeah, but I do think there's value in reading this book no matter where you stand in your process. Of course. We've mentioned before that the first step in becoming an anti-racist practitioner is acknowledging that these ideas feel uncomfortable to you Mm -hmm. and to start asking yourself why that is. And in doing so, not to feel discouraged because it's all about reflection. That's what Mm -hmm. makes us better educators, right? Like stopping Mm -hmm. and reflecting on the beliefs we carry and the systems that we uphold. And for co-hosts of a Reflective Pedagogy podcast, that's something that both of us really relished in, this guided reflection Mm -hmm. throughout the book. Dr. Matha takes us through all the background theory and then moves us forward into thinking about and reflecting on our own practice. And one of the major ways that she does that is through these really great questions for reflection at the end of each chapter. Honestly, it would take hours to get through all of the questions. Mm -hmm. So I think to avoid that overwhelm that we mentioned, Mm -hmm. you kind of have to pick and choose the ones that you can digest at that moment Mm -hmm. and then keep the other ones to allow to ruminate over time. So to get us into the mindset, a question I had noted in the prologue was, How can we participate in English language teaching in a way that's responsible, ethical, and conscious of the consequences of our practice? Yeah, so that question is really the perfect example of what you can expect from this book Mm -hmm. and how you're plunged in right away. And that question introduces us to an overarching concept that we have to grapple with, which is that teaching English is sort of a contradiction, the catch-22 of ELT. Mm. In teaching English, we want to support speakers of other languages, but at the same time, we're maintaining the status quo of whiteness through the hegemony of English. Right. We're faced with a conundrum, right? Mm -hmm. English has historically been used as and is still used for social advancement. Mm -hmm. English is also considered a way of liberating people and giving them more opportunities in our globalized world. But then on the other side of the coin, of course, we're reinforcing this system of oppression. And so that's kind of what's meant by this idea of the teaching of English being a contradiction. Mm -hmm. So how do we position ourselves as educators within this system? I think one of the greatest challenges is the belief that a teacher can't possibly make a significant difference in such a large industry. Mm. And to me, that feels like throwing in the towel without even taking a shower. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty sure you just made that expression up. Yeah, I did. I did. It works, (laughs) though, right? Giving up before really putting your head down and doing the work. So should teachers feel bad about their involvement in this system? Mm. Dr. Matha points out that educators do have a non-negligible role in sustaining it. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you have to feel bad or guilty necessarily, Mm -hmm. but I do think there's a need to take ownership, right? Turn your guilt into conscious reflection instead, and then allow that conscious reflection to turn into advocacy, whatever that means for you. And so that's really what this book is driving for, right? Be more aware of your role and stop trying to disassociate from oppressive systems and maintain this idea of being in a post-racist society. Mm. We're complicit, whether we mean to be or not. And the sooner we accept that, the sooner we can start getting things done. Mm -hmm. So I want to pause here because you mentioned the term post-racist. And I think it's worth examining some of the key terminology in chapter two. Something that both of us really appreciated was how Dr. Matha took time to differentiate between terms that are often used and conflated in conversations surrounding race and power. For example, the term post-racist, which is, first of all, quite 
obviously not a thing. Let's just get that out there. <laughs> no, yeah. But it is often affiliated with post-colonialism, which is also not a thing, right? <laughs> right, right. We're not living in a post-colonial world, really. Instead, we're living in what Dr. Matha calls this neo-colonial moment. It's not mm -hmm. colonialism in the sense that we used to think of colonialism. It's a new form of colonialism that exists through a more interconnected economic sociopolitical system. Mm -hmm. And so it's not a single government like France or England going and dominating a territory. Rather, it's a system that's allowing this sort of Western hegemony to endure. And because of the way that the systems have positioned English, you know, which is tied to these formerly colonialist countries, then the language is a big part of what keeps these countries in power. Mm -hmm. And this power is related to the use of the term empire with a lowercase e and empire with an uppercase e, which appears in the title of the book. Empire. Yeah, <laughs> empire. <laughs> so basically, Dr. Matha distinguishes between the two. The lowercase empire refers to one nation state's historical and intentional control or an occupation over another, like what happened in colonial times with the UK and France, versus capitalized empire as this broader mm -hmm. concept that we have today, where it's a more complicated power relationship on a transnational level, more subject to economic rather than overt government forces. It's kind of complicated. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty complicated, but it, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Empire versus empire, right? <laughs> and so then as educators, we have to contend with how these forces show up in our classrooms. Mm -hmm. In particular, Dr. Matha warns us against liberal multiculturalism because it has colorblind and essentially racist undertones. Right. When we say things like, I don't see color, we're purposefully ignoring realities attached to someone's identity and a complex history associated with it. And so instead, she pushes for what she refers to as critical multiculturalism, which doesn't just superficially acknowledge different lived experiences, but analyzes the way that power circulates in relation to culture. And critical multiculturalism, I think, also asks you to consider what your position is in this construct of power. Mm -hmm. What is your relationship to English? How has English served you? How does your variety of English or accent position you mm -hmm. socially? And I think that these questions about identity and understanding your place as an English speaker and teacher helps you to transcend your implicit involvement through intentional instruction, right? Nice, nice. You can go on and ask yourself, how does my identity impact the way that I'm teaching or what forms and varieties of English I believe should be taught in ESOL classrooms or to ESOL students in mainstream classrooms? Am I only teaching or acknowledging my English, and in my case, my white English? And most importantly, I think, is to ask, how do I not present in a way that's going to damage other English-speaking identities and other sociolinguistic identities? And this question of identity doesn't show up only in classroom practices, but also in our interactions with students and our colleagues as well. Mm -hmm. The identity of the teacher matters just as much as the students. If I remember correctly, there was an example from Dr. Matha's data of a teacher imposing her own lived experience on a learner. Do you remember that? Mm, the one about the school newspaper. Yeah, yeah, that one. So mm. the student said that the school newspaper was racist and the teacher, who was white, said she agreed with him, but she wanted to know why he thought it was racist. Mm. 
The student responded that it's only black students who were represented and it doesn't include the experience of Latinx students. So the teacher was like, well, I think that you should write a letter and lodge your complaint to the paper. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And at face value, this advice doesn't seem wrong, but this sort of proactive view is very much anchored in this kind of white middle class woman's privilege of being able to make a difference by making her voice heard. Right. She was projecting her own identity onto her student. So it's really pervasive and in ways that we don't necessarily realize. Mm -hmm. And so is that lack of representation that the student brought up. Mm -hmm. As far as we know, the newspaper editors thought they were doing a great job at sharing diverse voices, and yet they were still creating some sort of divide. Overgeneralization and stereotyping happen inadvertently, sometimes hidden behind good intentions. Yes, stereotyping. Mm -hmm. There's a case study that touches upon this idea, and also this idea of colorblind racism as well. There was a teacher meeting of some kind, and one of the white teachers was talking about some behavioral issues among her non-white students, they were all black, Mm. and she didn't know how to reprimand them because she was assuming that they were all having problems at home and that they didn't have discipline at home based on what little she knew of how they might have been raised. And so then a black colleague of hers stood up and said something along the lines of, In my household, there was no misbehaving. You did something wrong once and you didn't do it again. There must be something wrong in the way you're teaching them. Mm. And then the white teacher just dismissed her colleague's input and was like, yeah, I, I just don't know. I don't know what to do with them. Totally evaded a deeper conversation about race. And her dismissiveness reflected the tendency for white people to avoid these kinds of conversation. Yeah, it's it's that liberal multiculturalism, right? Mm. But about stereotypes, there was another really interesting case study in the book when Dr. Matha questions whether bringing up stereotypes in the classroom is problematic in and of itself. Mm. This one totally made my head spin. Mm. I, I put a little note in the margins of the book. I was just so interested in this thought. Yeah, I actually highlighted that part too. I personally like to introduce stereotypes and put them into question as a part of an exploration of intercultural communication. Yeah. But I hadn't even thought of the fact that introducing or naming stereotypes might actually concretize them. What do you think, Anna? Is it a bad idea to introduce stereotypes or does calling them out give the students the tools that they need to confront and dispel those stereotypes? Yeah, um, I don't know. That's an issue I've been torn about Mm. myself. And one, unfortunately, that isn't really resolved for us in the book. It's just a really good question Mm -hmm. to think about, right? Mm -hmm. Like the teacher in the case study is white and had very good intentions in naming stereotypes, hoping that from there the students would be able to defy the stereotype. But it was really complicated by her positioning as a white woman. Because in this example, she's also distancing herself, drawing a line between her group and the group of students, otherizing, essentially. Yeah. And we know that highlighting differences between identities can be polarizing. Yeah, and that polarization is a big issue. The book highlights how being a learner of English in a monolingual country like the U.S., or being labeled as an English learner by others can be really 
devastating for individuals. Mm-hmm. You know, there's that sort of monolingual habitus that Dr. Matha talks about mm-hmm. and that tells us that this is America. Speak English. And, and we've yeah. heard that before. We've seen it before. Mm-hmm. And so instead of looking at additional languages as an asset, there is very much this deficit mindset around speaking other languages. And with that, there's also there's this assumption that because someone speaks another language as their native language, that they have less of an ability to speak the English language. Right. And so we have to think about how this deficit mentality becomes ingrained in the psyche of a learner. Mm-hmm. People get it into their minds that not speaking like a native means you'll fall behind. Mm-hmm. Actually, as I was reading, I had this really heartbreaking conversation with my husband, whose second language is English, but it's now his dominant language. So he emigrated from India when he was nine or 10 years old. And so I was sitting in the car talking to him about what we were discussing in this book. And he was telling me like, yeah, when I got here, I worked really hard to erase my language and to sound like a Mm. native English speaker, because if I didn't do that, I wasn't going to make it. And it just, it just broke my heart to hear that because I mean, It's not that it was really all that surprising to me. I knew that subconsciously, but to hear him fully recognize that really was difficult to hear. And it just seems to happen to so many people. Mm -hmm. In the book, Dr. Matha calls that disremembering, Mm -hmm. the deliberate, always incomplete effort to expunge our cultural DNA. And that's from page 97. It's horrible. Yeah, right. It's it's something that needs to be taken more seriously. Mm -hmm. Like family I know who are from India have laughed about it, referring to their own people as coconuts, you know, which Mm -hmm. means brown on the outside, white on the inside. And I usually kind of go along with it. They mean it jokingly. But that Mm -hmm. term has started to upset me more and more because it's just like this, this proof of this disremembering of trying to erase your cultural identity. Yeah, it's a little uncomfortable. And I think it reflects yet another great quote from Dr. Matha in this book. In one of the later chapters, she brings up the idea that, quote, the ESL students themselves are complicit in their own marginalization. Uh, That's a good quote. Yeah, that once they get through the ESL program, they want to integrate into the mainstream. They just want to distance themselves from that category of being an English learner. And often students will treat being an English learner as something that they have to rise above, Mm -hmm. right? They don't want to be associated with that group or categorized as such. It's super sad. And I think these desires are in part born of the segregation that does occur on so many different levels, Mm -hmm. social, emotional, psychological, even physical segregation. Did I ever tell you about my office when I was the coordinator of a university-based ESL program? Uh, no. Ooh, okay, story time. (laughs) So when I took over the role of coordinator of the ESL program at a college, well, Actually, the role didn't exist because it was believed that the ESL program just sort of like ran itself on (laughs) word of mouth. It's crazy looking back at, but it was, you know, the responsibility of a professor to look after the program in their spare time. So I was an instructor in the program. And when I was asked to spend a few hours a week overseeing the program, you know, I was young and eager and cared about the program. So I agreed. Mm -hmm. But I knew that just a few hours a week wasn't enough. Right. And it wasn't until I came around and I sat down with a committee of vice presidents and deans and had a chance to say, 
hey, this program needs more attention. And at the very minimum, it needs a coordinator, like a real coordinator. Yeah, no and kidding. Yeah. <laughs> fortunately, they agreed with me and the position was formally created. And you'd never told me about that, actually, how you came to be in that role. Wow. <laughs> I'm surprised because it's probably one of the highlights of my career thus far. So the position was created, but then there was the question of like, well, where do we put you? <laughs> so for like three years, three years, my office was a closet. Oh. Like I was literally housed in a, a closet. Oh, <laughs> oh, man. I mean, when people would like pop in and be like, oh, I need this book oh or my I need gosh. these staples. You know? That's crazy. Um, so, I mean, what does it even say to students when their coordinator is sitting in a closet? Mm -hmm. It's not so shocking, mm -hmm. though, because, I mean, ESL departments and universities, and I mean, we're talking about universities because that's where both of us have primarily worked. Mm -hmm. These departments, they just kind of float around like they don't have a presence. They're sort of... Mm -hmm a more marginal subset of a department or they operate in a different way than the other academic departments. Mm -hmm. The black sheep of education, right? Yeah. I think anything that's not considered mainstream gets that label. And it might seem like the perception is totally out of teacher's control, but there are subtle ways perhaps to shift that to reduce ESL students' marginalization. Mm. Like, I remember in the book, there was an example of a teacher who found a simple but brilliant way to bridge that gap. She started to insert herself in a classroom context that wasn't ESL to engage with students who were not labeled as ESL students as a way to kind of cultivate a more community approach to learning. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really spectacular because, you know, if you are an ESL teacher in a primary or a secondary program... A lot of the time you're looked at as the sort of special education teacher, and then that category is extended to the students who you work with, creating a divide. Brilliant. I love that example. I also appreciate Matha's push for teachers to interrogate their view of standard English. Mm. She pushes readers to look at English as a multinational language, provincializing English rather than just adhering to this idea of a mainstream, aka white English. And that's something that needs to start with us, right? She says, quote, those of us who speak legitimated forms of English have a responsibility to consider the implications of privileged speaker status for the pursuit of social justice in our practice, end quote. And I think that really means just that we need to question what is considered legitimated and why. I actually highlighted these questions at the back of mm -hmm. chapter five. What English do you speak? What English do you teach in your classroom? Which type of English? What forms or varieties of English do you believe should be taught? And also, just like, what forms of English am I even qualified to teach? And what even is standard English? Mm. Why are we so obsessed with standardizing everything? Especially when we know that doing so removes so much of the richness that comes with nonconformance. Just so much to reflect on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think actually that these open-ended reflections are one of the calls to action of the book, to critically reflect within your teaching. Right. Don't take the easy way out. Be more critical, even if it hurts. For example, we talked about representation in episode 14 and the need to evaluate and then push ourselves to go beyond just surface representation of a group. Oh, yeah. And now we have a good word for that. Mm. Dr. Matha used the term palliated difference to discuss right. how representation is often done in classrooms and books. 
difference that's easier to digest because it just kind of is like a racialized version of a white thing, right? Just a little different. Like it's different in a way that makes us feel comfortable with the difference while introducing a different face. Right. A surface level difference. Mm -hmm. And then you also have to think about how you're bringing these kinds of reflections into your classroom with your students. We need to create the space within our classrooms to recognize the constraints, the system that our students are operating within, not just hiding it and doing this colorblind racism thing. Create a space that's specific to your students and conducive to supporting their own investigation of their language, their history, their race, how all of that fits into the system that they live within. Yes. So, I mean, that's the first takeaway, critically approaching your teaching and in the process, creating that space for the students to also critically approach the system. Absolutely. And in order to cultivate critical pedagogy, there needs to be a focus on teacher training, which I think is the second major call to action. We can't just put this topic to the side and let teachers discover it on their own because no one has the bandwidth to do that. Cultivating an anti-racist practice doesn't just happen overnight, and it deserves more than just an elective course in an education program. Ah, yes. So this is where I got really frustrated reading the book because I was like, wait, why did I not read this book in grad school? I mean, okay, Mm -hmm. maybe it was too late by the time it came out for it to enter into the canon. But I mean, Mm -hmm. why was it that I never read any article by Dr. Matha or a similar article by someone else? Mm Or even, you know, why didn't we focus more time on this? Maybe I just took the wrong electives? Yeah. So adding, don't blame yourself, Anna, don't blame yourself. I think that (laughs) adding anti-racist pedagogy to the curriculum for TESOL teachers in training would be great progress. There is a tendency in our field for folks to turn a blind eye and say, I work with minoritized groups, so I can't be racist. And so I think that it's essential early on in one's training to point out to pre-service teachers that that's just not a given. Yeah, and also extend learning beyond a pre-service program. Mm -hmm. I like this idea of having an ongoing professional learning network, a community of practice. That was really important for me, especially in the first few years of teaching, an ongoing conversation about how these issues manifest in our classrooms, not something remedial or trying to fix what we already do. Mm -hmm. I love PLNs and the conversations they facilitate. That's how you got me into the book club, and that's why we created this Mm -hmm. podcast. Continuous professional learning is pivotal. But if you're not participating in a PLN, take your development into your own hands. Read this book. Ask yourself the tough questions. Do a bit of inner work. Something is better than nothing and might lead you to some great insight. So listeners, we want to hear from you. Have you read this book and have some takeaways that you'd like to share? Or if you haven't read it, what questions has this discussion sparked for you? You can join the conversation on our various social media accounts. Email us via our contact form at teacherthinkaloud.com or comment via Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. We welcome your reflections, questions, and ideas. For more resources related to today's topic, take a look at our website and our podcast Anchor page, anchor.fm slash teacherthinkaloud. And to make a donation or buy some podcast swag, swag. head over to teacherthinkaloud.com slash support dash us. Thanks so much for joining us on the Teacher Think Aloud podcast. And until next time, happy teaching and happy reflecting. Mm-hmm.